Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church and a wonderful day. A few announcements that are in your bulletin. I want to highlight a few. This morning, obviously, we're having communion, but next Saturday's Ladies' Christmas Brunch with a gift exchange of candles. You can see the, the rest there. And for December, the whole month of December, our offerings, which is, there's a box in the back, is for missions. So if you want your money to go somewhere else, designate it somewhere else. But all undesignated offerings, anything that you put in there that isn't specified will go to Anchored in Truth missions for the whole month. That's something we've been doing. And another way to look at it is if, if you thought maybe you'll send a gift to one of our missionaries, if you just write a check, you can include the shipping and handling causes, charges, and it goes to a good cause. After the service, moms and dads, there's going to be practice for the kids up here, so hang around. And you'll notice that we've had some termite damage in the back, and we've hired a very slow contractor to try to replace the wall. But we actually started working on the leprosy wall, and it's, it's a long, drawn-out process. We're trying to get Old Testament priests to come in and spray it with hyssop and it's very difficult this time of year to get the blood of goats and rams, but it, it, it's a work in progress, so thank you for your patience. The church could not hire good help, so they've gotten somebody to, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get what you pay for. Luke 2.11 reads, Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. <clears throat> Let's stand and turn to 180 and we'll sing the first Noel. <clears throat> 180. All four verses. <laughs>
word that's borrowed from the French and essentially deals with the birth, and particularly here, then the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. It is through this very season, too, in which we think about Christ, his coming, this incarnation. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a significant truth, familiar as it might be. Love of God expressed in the giving of Jesus Christ, who came to save his people from their sin. When I think of the term love itself, not that this is all that it embraces, but certainly let me just give you three ideas to hang the thought of love at this time. One is grace. Grace given to us by God, who has given to us Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh, came, lived an absolutely perfect life, which this bread represents. Mercy. Mercy in that God does not repay us for sin judicially and put it on Christ who bore our sin on his body on the tree. The cross, which we'll be preaching about in just a bit. So think of grace, the gift of Christ's righteousness, mercy, which is represented by this other element, the fruit of the vine, the blood of Christ. And then the third aspect I said about this would be the absolute faithfulness of God in all of this. This is not something God gives and then would take away or accomplishes and then somehow is gone. It is because of God's faithful, steadfast love that indeed we can enjoy the gift of mercy and grace given to us, and we're reminded about it in this season. Let me bless the elements, and then I want to call you up. We'll start traditionally like we're doing here. You pick up both elements, then return back to your seat, wait, and we'll receive it together. It is a joy for us to be able to gather together and commune with Christ if you have repented, believed in Jesus Christ, obedient to him, then come. Join, commune with Christ. You don't have to be a member of this church, but you do have to actually be a member of Christ's body. And for you others who are not uh, united with Christ, and you young folks, use this to look and see and learn. And parents, you can use this also as an object lesson this time of year to teach your children, about the grace given to us in Christ, his mercy granted to us by God through the death of Christ and his steadfast, faithful love to us. Let me bless these elements, then I'll call you up to receive. Father, we're thankful for your love. Not that we loved you, but that 
you loved us and sent your Son to be an absolute payment for our sin. We stand before you really in ourselves unworthy, but in Christ our Lord, absolutely, perfectly worthy. May we wear the righteous robes of Christ with joy, with peace, and with absolute praise to your holy name. We gather together as your people to commune, to think about Christ, and to remember, in particularly this season, the gracious gift that you have given. We pray this and ask you to bless these elements for our spiritual worship. In Christ's name, amen. I mentioned there are two elements. The bread represents the body of Christ, his perfect righteousness, perfect fulfillment of all the law, absolute perfection in what he did and what he should have done. Something none of us would measure up, but it is God's gift his grace to you. Receive this in remembrance of Christ. And I don't know why I'm always thinking about this when I come to the cup. I think of the accuser of the brethren. 
Satan himself, he might even remind you of what you might be guilty of, even this day, perhaps tomorrow. But know that Christ would simply tell you what he inspired his apostle John to tell us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great mercy in Christ is. Receive this in remembrance of him. This morning what we would do as well, we are going through our Advent candles. Advent just simply talks about the first coming of Christ. And we're using these candles as an object lesson. Last week we focused on Christ being the light of the world. Today Jerry and Linda will come and light the second candle to talk about Christ as the Son of God. Take your worship folders and in the inside cover, there'll be a section for you to repeat. It says congregation on that. The text of scripture is there. You don't need to read that. Just put a note. That's where this is coming from. So if you'll have your worship folder and prepare to read the congregation section. I like this candle to remind us of God's promise to send the one who is the son of God. God spoke to people many times and in many ways by his prophets. And so people learned many things about God. But the prophets told of God's promise. Someday, God would send his own son to people, the very image of God. The prophet Isaiah said, For a child will be born unto us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulder. And his name will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Who is the Son of God? The angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary. You will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. Jesus is the Son of God. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we have gathered your people to certainly commune with Christ and to remember this incarnation, the sending of Jesus Christ to take on human flesh, to bear our sin on his body on the tree. We're thankful that regardless of whatever circumstance or situation we might find ourselves in, to know that we are in Christ resolves every problem every situation, and every circumstance. I sincerely pray, along with your people, that indeed the joy of Christ, particularly in this season as we're reminded of his excellence, his beauty, and his glory, I pray, Father, that there will be an exceeding joy that really outshines the beauty of the shadows those good gifts that indeed that we have. May all those things which are beautiful redound to your glory. 
remind us of the splendor and the excellency of who you are. I'm thankful that we can enjoy a season of, of um, times for us to get together, to give and to receive gifts, to enjoy company of one another, fellowship and food, and the various things that you give us day to day. But indeed, these are not the reality of the beauty of being in your presence with this, which is fullness of joy. I pray our glimpse of it will just whet our appetite to desire you even more. And I pray that that desire would overflow in great joy, great peace, and indeed, may we truly express a deep-seated love for one another. I pray, Father, that you would bless us and keep us and cause us to praise your holy name, not just this day, but in the days to come. And I pray it would overflow into the lives of those who do not know Christ. Use us, indeed, to speak of your excellence and glory to be a pointer to that very one, God incarnate, the Son of God. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's stand again and take our hymn books, and we'll continue singing. Start with 192, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. When the completion of the time came, God sent his Son. Galatians 
6. Come thou long and expect thee, Jesus. Born in the people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever.
morning, church. This morning's scripture reading is from Psalm 84. You'll find it on page 493 of your pew Bible. This psalm praises the Lord for the comfort and happiness of being with the people of God in the house of God. The world is a place of daily work and difficulty, but God refreshes us and gives us rest. He gives us He gives us strength to improve the land where we live and bless those around us. And he does not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. Or or as Paul says in chapter 8 of Romans, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of, Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is a shield, a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who takes who trusts in you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your many blessings, for putting us in families, supplying the necessities of life, bringing us to this place of refuge from the world, and giving us the happy fellowship with brothers and sisters here. We thank you for the privilege of spending part of our day in your house with your people. And we thank you that you do not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. Father, our strength is in you. As, as we go through our week, give us strength and diligence to do the good work you have prepared for us. We pray that we, our neighbors, and the land would be blessed through it and that you would be glorified. And Father, as we consider your blessings and promises, your law and our consciences remind us how unworthy we are of them, for we have all sinned against you. So all the more we thank you for choosing us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world so that we could be called your children. In this Advent season, we thank you for giving the world the greatest of all gifts, the gift of your son, and we thank you for the gift of faith to receive him and the gift of your Holy Spirit who sanctifies us and gives us comfort and assurance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
This morning, I invite you to turn to John's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 19 and begin in verse 16. Advent season begins, of course, in the cradle. It'll culminate in the cross where we're at today, and it'll be vindicated by the crown in Christ's resurrection and ascension into glory. But this morning we have come to the cross. And I want us to notice the glory of the cross specifically in the fulfillment of Scripture, of prophecy. In our narrative here in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been found not guilty by the Roman authorities. It's been stated on multiple occasions, yet verse 16 indicates that Pilate delivers him over to be crucified. If you're reading along with us in the Gospel of John, you'll notice that John does not really go into great detail as far as what was involved in the crucifixion. It simply says, kind of a matter-of-fact way, Jesus was crucified alongside of two others. He was just one of the others that was crucified. I'm just indicating, well, nothing really all that special. He's not singled out. Crucifixion is a cruel and gruesome way to die. It's so awful that most victims in this circumstance would be in an utter state of panic. That was what was intended by this form of death, which was really torture. It served as a warning for those that were opposed to Rome <coughs> that not only would they find death, but also would be executed in the most painful way. But in the narrative here we're reading, John doesn't really emphasize to a great detail of the physical pain that no doubt is a part of this crucifixion. Christ did suffer. But in the text, there is a pointer, if you will, to something different. That is the fulfillment of Scripture. The glory of Christ, at least one aspect of it here, is that it is a fulfillment of prophecy, of what was said before. Notice verse 24. We will get into a little detail here in a minute. But notice verse 24, verse 28, verse 36, and verse 37. <coughs> John tells us explicitly why these actions of these pagan men took place these things were to fulfill Scripture, to fulfill Scripture, to fulfill Scripture. And I would also mention it isn't just these verses that are mentioned here, these particular incidents which we'll go through. 
But I would argue every aspect of what is going on here on this day, on the day in which Christ was crucified, all of these actions are fulfilling Scripture. John's just pointing out a few of the details along the way. Sinful men, in their absolute ignorance, crucifies the Lord of glory. It is through, however, his sacrificial love that through the acts of evil men, God will accomplish the greatest good. He will provide atonement for all who will repent and trust in Jesus Christ. This is love. This is love, not that we love God. That, that's really not what is compared. What is compared, that God loved us, as John would say in his first epistle in chapter 4, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. This is what you see here. The very love of God on display. You think you love God. You don't compare to what he did. Paul would remind the church in Philippi how Christ set aside his glory to take on human flesh. And it doesn't look all that glorious as he's delivered over to be crucified today. But what is glorious is the love of God on display to accomplish what he purposes. The crucified Christ is this highest expression of God's love. No greater gift could be given. And I might add that no greater gift could be received. My heart was broken the other day when I talked to some young people who tried to think, and it was a different setting, but uh, they were trying to think about what to be thankful for since we just finished the Thanksgiving season, and several of them couldn't come up with very many things. I hope you will teach your children and everyone that you know about the greatest gift that could possibly be received, and that is Jesus Christ. Christmas is a reason for thanksgiving every single day. God did send his son. It, it is grace to us. That is, it is gift. And it should result in great gratitude and thanksgiving daily. And most highly noted here on the cross in which the propitiation, the appeasement, the payment for your penalty was accomplished and Jesus indicates that, which we'll see in our text, but elaborate later, when he says, it is finished. For our sakes, Paul would say to the church at Corinth, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. What a, what a gift. Could you think of a better gift to open than the righteousness of God given to you in Christ Jesus? Oh, beloved, I encourage you to read and think on these things and look at this gospel. In fact, 
John has told us again and again explicitly why he penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That very thing that Caiaphas and his court accused Jesus of, you claim to be the Christ, the Son of God, that is God incarnate. Blasphemy, they said. Absolute verity and truth, the Apostle John is saying. You understand? This is God incarnate. And what is essential more than anything else in the world is that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Why? Because believing in him is going to be life in his name. Everything else is death. Everything else is darkness. He is the light of the world. Everything else is destruction. Everything else is falling apart. Let me give you one gift to hang on at Christmas that won't wear out, and that is Jesus Christ. Do you have him? Is he yours? Well, these things are written so that you would believe and have life. We live in a cursed world. One of disease, destruction, darkness, and death, as I've mentioned before. And Christ has come overcome all of it. It's going to be clearly demonstrated in the cross and ultimately vindicated then by his resurrection. Well, let's read the context of this crucifixion and how Paul John records it for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning at verse 16 in chapter 19. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified, was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them in four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But The tunic was seamless, woven in a piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it will be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. 
From that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you would grant faith that that faith would flourish, feed us and nourish us from your holy word, illuminate our hearts through the Holy Spirit to see the significance of this truth, and may it impact us each in great ways to redound to your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I pointed out, and I hope you noticed as I've read here in this content that we're going through, this section, those verses, you can note them, 24, 28, 36, and 37. This constant refrain about a fulfillment of Scripture. This glory of Christ on the cross is expressed here in the fulfillment of of scripture, prophecy. There's many of them that were fulfilled, but these ones that John specifically identifies, they're not all, but these ones here, when I glance at it and take the first look, it it doesn't seem to be, well, all that terribly important. In fact, it seems a bit obscure. These are small details. Are they essential details? They're essential in that they were prophesied. And they must be fulfilled. Otherwise, God would be wrong. He would have made false statements. And as we've been talking about in our Sunday morning training hour, God doesn't make errors. His word is always true. It is inerrant and infallible, and that is demonstrated here on the cross. These fulfillment 
of Christ, even by these other wise minor things, it forms a basis of assurance for the believer. The unbeliever is not going to be motivated so much by this, but it will be proclaimed. And through hearing about the words of Christ, accompanied by the power and illuminating power dynamic of the Holy Spirit, yes, they may very well come to faith in Christ. And for those of us in Christ... To understand this and to know it, to digest it, if you will, to meditate on these truths, it will increase your faith and assurance in God to simply categorically know this, that God is true, that God will fulfill every one of his promises that he has made, and he will do it exactly as he desires and in spite of what others may want to do or design to do. At the very least, it should heighten your faith to be certain that all of Scripture is true down to the very last detail, even the minor ones. And John wants you to know that. He's the one he's speaking of in verse 35. He saw it. He is born witness. He was, and we'll talk about that perhaps some other time, but he was that other disciple at the foot of the cross with the women. It is John. He is an eyewitness. He was there historically writing this down and imploring the church this very word. This testimony is true. What he's telling you is the truth so that you might believe. So I believe, well, your faith is not strong enough. It needs to grow and to be more assured. A lot of people wrestle and doubt with their salvation, if you will, or the promises of God that all things work together for good, Right? To all those who are called according to his purpose. To all of those who truly love God. You may not believe that from time to time. Well, this will increase your faith and assurance. Knowing this verity of the truth. These Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus. And the statements that Jesus made about what would happen in short order during his ministry, are fundamental and foundational to your faith so that you will be assured of the things hoped for and have the conviction of things not seen. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11, so that indeed you would be somebody of faith, absolutely certain and assured. Let's walk through this narrative and consider then some of the evidence of things not seen. And the first one is this crucifixion, verse 16. It, it just simply states, as I've introduced this, that he delivers them over to be crucified. That is Pilate doing this. He sends out the detail to carry out this crucifixion. 
Now, this form of death was well known. It was, as I said, a torturous way to die. The Romans didn't invent it, but they did perfect it. They mastered this art. The victim was initially beaten nearly to death. That's why I said the first scourging we talked about last week was probably at a lower level of humiliation. When he delivers him over, John doesn't get into the details of this crucifixion, but I assure you what happens in practice is this very thing. Then at this point, Jesus is beaten to a pulp. Some of them that would have been beaten to this level would not have survived the beating. That's how awful it is. They don't expect the victim to recover, right? So there's no holds bar. They're just lacerating him and exposing all kinds of flesh and internal organs and so forth. Great suffering here. This would be, as I described last week, the level three scourging for him to deliver him over to be crucified. That's the first step in the process. They would strip him down and beat him and beat him nearly to death. The victim would be stripped naked for humiliation's sake. The hands and feet then would be affixed in some form to a crossbeam and a post, hence the shape of a cross, and nails often used to secure them as well as inflict additional pain to help hasten death. Those who died on this instrument of death, if they lasted any length of time, would eventually die of asphyxiation. In that position hanging there, nailed in the weakened state, eventually they wouldn't be able to breathe. Blood loss, swelling of the brain, it, it goes on. It's an awful death. Rome used this form of punishment, this awful form, to warn criminals, slaves, and insurgents not to go against the authority. Romans, by the way, citizens, were essentially exempted from this form of death unless they were directly authorized by Caesar to do so. That's how awful it was. Cicero described this crucifixion as the most, quote, cruel and hideous of tortures. I'd agree. But notice here, John, what he focuses on, he just says he was crucified. It is Pilate who is delivering, verse 16. He delivered him. This is a phraseology, judicially passing him on to this execution that is to be carried out. Even though Pilate, as we've mentioned, declared Jesus to be not guilty, he still delivers him over to death. He hands him over, if you will. It is his free will act as a pagan, but it was ordained by God. Peter reminds us that it is ultimately God who delivers Jesus over. I'll read it for you, Acts 2.23 Peter, one of the disciples here, says Jesus was, and he uses the same phraseology, delivered up 
according to the definite plan of God. This is God's plan, and yet here a pagan king, uh, ruler, should I say, does exactly what he wants to in his own heart, violating his own ethics and delivering him over, we could assume perhaps to save his job since the mob claimed that, well, if you don't do this, we're going to revolt. You're not a friend of Caesar. But this isn't, and it shouldn't be new to the disciples. Jesus had told them that all of this would happen exactly the way it has happened. If you want to see, for example, Matthew chapter 20, here's one of the teaching moments of Christ. Say, what did he do in his three-year ministry? Well, a lot of it had to deal with teaching his disciples. Why did it take three years? Well, they're probably slow learners. (laughs) Probably like you and me at times. In any case, he did teach them time and time again. Matthew records it in Matthew 20 and verse 17. An explanation of what happened on this particular day. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, verse 17 of chapter 20, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them. So he takes them outside and here's a special instruction just for the 12. See, Verse 18, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. All that has just Happened. All that we read about, <clears throat> the actions of this Jewish court, the actions of this Roman court, all of it was foretold by Jesus Christ, told to his disciples, and said, this will happen, and this is exactly what happened. All of this had to occur because it's a fulfillment of, and we'll look at some of the Old Testament prophecies, but also the very teaching and the words of Christ who said he's going to do this in uh, this will actually happen. So they took Jesus. They took Jesus, it says in our text. This phraseology, they just, and we know chronologically what happened. He took, he delivers him over, and then they just take him. Where has Jesus been? He's been at this Jewish trial, and then he went to the Roman trial. Both of them delivers them over to judgment. In both courts, this is a rush to judgment. Do you remember? I mean, in the Jewish court, they're supposed to wait days before they execute somebody. They're supposed to sleep on it. This is why they did this in the morning and got back together as if they really pondered over it and thought about it. In the Jewish court, the Jewish court, they were supposed to be advocates for the victim because you don't want to accidentally kill somebody who really wasn't guilty. You're going to err on on the side (coughs) of caution. 
Oftentimes it would take weeks for them to finally come to a decision of death and then to actually execute it. Here it's all immediate in the Jewish court. In the Roman, it's the same way. They actually did have some provisions as well to kind of wait, to give a little cooling off period, a time, and it's hard for me to determine (coughs) exactly what the procedures were because they did vary, (coughs) but essentially at least a couple of days. Kind of a cooling off period. You know, here in our country, we we put uh, uh, death row victims on uh, death row for a long period of time. And part of that is, well... Um, if if we don't want to execute someone who didn't actually do the crime, and so you give it a little time. Here, no time was given. They went. He went straight to judgment to execution. Why why did that occur? Can I remind you? It is through the fulfillment of holy scripture that's why they did exactly what was in their heart but God said this is what would happen well Isaiah 53 is a great passage for you to spend time in in a devotional time I like devotional books and I'll I'll read actually I read three or four of them a day I just like the things but oftentimes I just pull out scripture to be a devotion too And here's a great one to spend some time in if you're not familiar with it. Isaiah 53, we won't go through the whole text, but I'll read a couple for you here that line up with what's going here. Isaiah 53, 8 specifically says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who is considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions, of my people. That phraseology here by oppression and judgment is the idea that here they bind him, they judge him, and they execute him immediately. This text, by the way, like all the other scriptures that are going to be quoted and fulfilled, ironically sit in Jerusalem in the temple right now, right? This text here in Isaiah, written some 700 years before this event takes place, was already written. They are fulfilling that very thing that God had said. They're doing by their own accord and their own will, fulfilling exactly what Scripture said in this rushing to judgment. It's a fulfillment of Scripture. Back to our text in chapter 19 of John and verse 17. And I won't get to all of this, but I'll get to some of it. He went out, verse 17, bearing his own cross. He went out. The other gospel writers kind of indicate, to give a little fuller idea, that Jesus was, was let out, if you will, and bearing his cross. Now, that may at first glance not seem like much. Of course, he went out and he's bearing his cross. But you see, victims in this state, in the crucified state that would have been tortured at a high level, beaten to a bloody pulp, 
They're now awaiting to be executed on a cross, which is the most painful way they can imagine. It's torture. At this point, most of these folks that would have been involved as victims here would have been not only very weak, this timber that would had to be carried, would carried or dragged along would be at least a couple hundred pounds or more. It would be very difficult. The procedure was to parade them through the city, out of the city, so that the people can kind of get a view of what's going on. Again, a further intimidation. <clears throat> Could you imagine this victim? Further humiliation as they're going along, they would have been then beaten to their death. Well, what would drive them forward? They wouldn't be just going out and just bearing their cross. They would be driven out. They would be beaten. Panic state. That's not the state here that's given to Jesus Christ. It is not a panic state of frenzy. This very state of Jesus going out willingly in great pain and agony and bearing a couple hundred pounds, dragging it down the street, not be driven. He just goes out and does it. It reminds us again of Isaiah 53, and I'll read it for you, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, and so he opened not his mouth. All that occurred in just even the creation of a sheep and how it reacts in that event, all of that, you understand, in creation pointed to Christ and to this very moment who would go out like a sheep, if you will, and just go straight to the slaughter. It's the willingness of Christ different than how a typical person would, would act and react that is crucified. Back to verse 17, notice that, that he goes and he's going out. Out is significant. That is, recognize where this is going. This is going outside of Jerusalem. They're inside of Jerusalem. That's where this would, would begin. But he's going to be outside and go to this place of the skull called Golgotha. It happens outside of Jerusalem. This practice here is, again, just in and of itself, a fulfillment, what we would call an anti-type in the fulfillment. The type that I'm referring to, and I'll read it for you, is from Exodus 29:14. When the sacrifice for sin, that they would kill a bull, right, and an animal, and take its blood for atonement, for sacrifices, and they would take the body outside the camp and burn and dispose of the body outside the camp. All of that even pointed to Christ as he goes outside the camp with his body, outside of Jerusalem. Unless you think I'm creating some story about this, I'll give you an inspired writer, the book of Hebrews. I'll read it for you. Chapter 13, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice of sin are burned outside the camp. 
And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. All of human history, I would argue, pointed to this very day, this cross right here. All the way from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden, when the curse was put on Satan. And he would put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And you shall bruise, and he shall bruise your head. That is, crush you, kill you, destroy you, but you will bruise his heel. We see the bruising of the heel of Christ here on the cross. All the Jewish ceremonies then that were set up that you can read about. All this text here in scripture that you've got to deal with. You know, you get this New Year's resolution to go read through the Bibles and and you get stuck in Leviticus. It's kind of tough sledding, isn't it? But can I remind you, there's a purpose for it because it all points to this day. It all points to Christ. All the Psalms that we read, they all point to Christ. All of the prophets then that you would read, they all speak of Christ. They all point to Christ. The cross here is then the dividing line of history. All that happened before points to this very day. And all that happens since points back to that day. That's why we have this as the object to remind us of Christ. And what happened on this very day. Concerning all of scripture and all of history. Scripture specifically but I would say all of history as well, points to this. Um, Don't take my word for it. Let's see what Luke has to say in Luke chapter 24. It might be worth looking at Luke chapter 24, and I'll show you two sections there. Post-resurrection, you remember, Jesus meets some of his followers in we call it the road, excuse me, <coughs> we call it the road to Emmaus. And they're kind of disheartened about what's going on. You know, they didn't have like the internet and little video to show, so they weren't quite certain what all had happened. They, they heard about Jesus' teaching and that he was the king. They, they had expressed a belief, but he died on this cross. Now what? All their hopes were dashed. Jesus tells them, verse 25 of Luke chapter 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Do you believe God's word? If you don't, listen, you're just a foolish one. Hear it from Christ. Believe what the prophets have spoken. And then he goes on to explain what the prophet has spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, that would be the Messiah, that would be Jesus, right? He would suffer these things and enter into his glory. And so then, verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the scriptures concerning 
the things of himself. He explains all of Scripture. How do you like to go to that Bible study? Wouldn't that be great? But when he, when he talks about Moses and the prophets, you know what he's saying? He's saying the entirety of the Old Testament. That's one way to say it. The beginning to the end, all of it points to Christ, and Christ demonstrated that to them. Their response is in verse 32. They got heartburn, the good kind. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Beloved, get the scriptures. Pray that the Holy Spirit would open your heart to where you would have the significance of it. Uh, I, I, um, I'm overwhelmed often in just reading the scriptures and studying what a blessing it is to prepare. And then all of a sudden, you, you'll burn with the significance of this truth, that of which I can't really explain. It is a unique dynamic in spirit experience when the Holy Spirit actually illuminates your heart to the very significance of this truth. And I'll tell you what happens. Your faith, your assurance, your courage, your conviction will be built on this very truth. It's a spiritual dynamic. Drop down to verse 44. Here's the disciples. He says to them in verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, notice this, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is a more complete way of just describing the entirety of what we would call the Old Testament. All of what was written about Christ in all of those books, in every letter, every word, must be fulfilled. And then here is the spiritual dynamic aspect. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I mean, it's, beloved, it's one thing just to read the words. We're not talking about understanding language and how to read phrases and how to understand uh, verbs and nouns and, and these kinds of things. This understanding is to, I, I just use the term significance of it, right? The, the significance of this substance. It is a dynamic by which Christ enables. And thus he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name beginning from Jerusalem. Your witness of these things, and then to open their minds in the future, since he's going away, he promises what to them and to you that he will send the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. And he tells them to wait until you have the power of the Holy Spirit, so then when you proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The dynamic of the Holy Spirit will work in the very hearts of men, and you know the rest of the story. Let's slip down to verse 23. Verse 23, here's another detail about what the soldiers did. Seemingly really unimportant thing that's recorded concerning the garment. 
Here's the soldiers. Remember, they have the job of executing the victim, and customary, they would have been able to keep the possessions that the victim had, his clothes. You and I would think nothing about it, but they didn't have a China Mart on every corner for you to get cheap clothes, right? These would be highly valuable items, and so they could rework them to fit or sell them or so forth. Anyway, the, the, these were clothes were of great value. So the soldiers get to keep the goods. They split it among them. And then it were told here that there's this one item that they couldn't divvy up. It was a tunic. It was seamless. Now, here John takes the trouble of recording this for us. And my question might be simply this, and for you to think about, why does this even matter? I mean, how is... The, the garment division essential to the atonement of Christ, right? Is that, does that do anything for the propitiation of your sin? His garment, his items, his personal items. No, it doesn't. Not really. But why, why was this detail even given? He tells us this was to fulfill Scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I would be rolling the dice or gambling, we might think of. So the soldiers did this. This was a fulfillment of the Messianic Psalm 22, written a thousand years before this very date. As I mentioned before, that very document that explains exactly what they're doing is sitting there in the same city in Jerusalem. Psalm 22, 18, if you want to find the text, I'll read it for you. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The Roman soldiers have no idea. They haven't been over there reading the temple scriptures. <laughs> they have no idea. This small detail, if it wasn't fulfilled, would demonstrate that Jesus is not the Christ. That God's word is not true. But it is. You can believe every jot and every tittle. Every mark in Scripture is absolutely true. And this seemingly insignificant fact is demonstrated to be true. By the way, I would just add... They're gambling for it. God is in control even of their vice. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. That's a different way to think about the world and life, isn't it? Let me just add a blessing for you. Next Friday the 13th, you've got nothing to worry about. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as quote-unquote good luck and bad luck. We don't live by superstition. We live by faith in a sovereign God who is, upholds all things by the word of his power and will accomplish all things as he promised. Believe him. Teach your children not to, not to fear. Not to fear men, but to trust God. This seamless garment is mentioned. There's a lot of thought about that particular garment. All I can say is that, yes, the high priest would have wore a seamless garment. And remember in our text, 
Caiaphas violates the law by tearing his. They weren't allowed to tear it. It was a man-made rule that said you could tear it. God said you can't. I think it is something to at least to think about that Jesus' garment as high priest wasn't torn even in the hands of sinful men. Verse 28, Jesus says he thirsts. He knows it all finished and he wants a drink. So they bring him sour wine and they put it to him. He's on the cross. They get it up to him by a branch called a hyssop. It's dipped and it brought to his lips. He cries out and says it's finished. All of this was to fulfill scripture, John tells us. I'll read the scripture, Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. If you remember the other gospel writers, they will talk about Jesus being offered this poisonous drink, a narcotic he refuses that once he recognizes what it is. Here on the cross, he's given this sour wine to drink, just as scriptures say. This detail about hyssop, to a Jewish reader at Passover, it brings back a memory to their mind. Remember, all of scripture points to Christ. The, the details are, are just not incidental. They're purposeful. And here at this very moment, if you remember at Passover, go look it up and see what they were to do in Exodus chapter 12. They were to slaughter a lamb and take his blood and wipe it on their doorframe with a specific branch. You know what the branch was called? Hyssop branch. I don't think it's just by accident that that was what was used here. Two things, finally, hopefully I'll fill, finish up here before tomorrow. Verse 31. They don't break his legs. It's the preparation day, and so the Jews want this to be over with, so they don't have to deal with it anymore, so they ask Pilate to break his legs. But notice here, verse 33, when they come to Jesus, they notice that he was dead already, so they didn't break his legs. Why didn't they break his legs? Was it because he was dead already? John tells us why. For these things took place that the scriptures might not be fulfilled. Again, d d does it matter whether his bones are broken or not as far as the propitiation for your sin? No, it doesn't. But why does it matter? Why is it pointed out? Because God said it mattered. And you need to be assured of his word. Psalm 34, 20. He keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. By the type of 
in the Old Testament, this ceremony that they would do, you can find that in Numbers chapter 9. They would take this little animal, this sheep, who was the lamb for the slaughter. And you know what they were prohibited to do? They were prohibited to break his bones. Why? Because does it matter if his bones are broken? No, because Christ's bones are not going to be broken. And all of that points to Christ from the very beginning to the very end and every little detail along the way. And you may not know what all of those details are. I understand that. So we're told here by the inspired writer, John, this is that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Year after year after year, all of these things pointed to this very day and that very moment when his legs should have been broken and they weren't. Verse 34, instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side. Now, I've read different comments on this. Some people, and they're speculating, that's fine, and if you, that, whatever you think about that's fine. I'm, I'm just telling you what I think. One of the soldiers pierces his side. We know that. Blood comes out with water. People get into all of that. But why do they bother piercing his side? And some have said, well, to make sure he's dead. Did you see what it already said of why they didn't break his legs in verse 33? Because they already knew he was dead. These are not amateurs. These are professionals. They do this all the time. They already knew he was dead. They're not piercing his side just to prove it. If they wanted to prove he's dead, they would have just gone ahead and broke his legs. They couldn't break his legs because that would invalidate Scripture. They pierce his side because this also fulfills Scripture quite literally. It fulfills Zechariah 12.10, another Scripture. When the Jews then in their restoration will, and I quote, look on him whom they have pierced. You can read about it in Zechariah 12 and go on to read in chapter 13 in Zechariah as well. It points to a restoration of these very people who are responsible for his crucifixion, the Jews. This imagery of they will look on him is the same thing we're called to do, that is to look on Christ. When I'm lifted up, it is, you know, as a symbolism in the Old Testament as well. Look and live. That's the point here. Zechariah will explain in chapter 13 of his prophecy. On that day, he's looking for a future day. There will be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That is the Jews. To cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. What sin do they have? A lot. And specifically, piercing Christ. In in the same chapter, verse 7, it says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. 
I'll turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land, declares the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third, that would be the remnant. I'll put them in a fire and refine them. It's not judgment, it's refining. Refine them as silver and test them as gold is tested. And they will call upon my name and I will answer them. They are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. They will one day repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll finish with this and you may want to look at it because a lot of people misunderstand how these things are going. But even in that wicked event, piercing him, it'll be the very thing that God will use to draw a remnant to him. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. I'll promise to finish here. Maybe. Here, the same writer, John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, will give us the final word to the church, and it is directed to all the churches immediately there in Asia, and of course, all who will follow in Christ. Chapter, verse 1, verse 4, he says, grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Here's the promise Behold, he's coming. In the clouds, in the clouds, and every eye will see him. And who else is going to see him? Even those who pierced him. That's this group. This is the salvation of this very group who crucified Christ even this day. All tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Beloved, the glory of the cross here is expressed in the fulfillment of every last detail. It is redemptive to all who will look on him, him who they have pierced. John, the eyewitness, begs and says, listen, this is true. I was here. I'm saying this because you need to believe. Trust him and him alone. Let us pray. Father, I pray by the power of the Spirit, you work in our hearts to cause faith for those who do not have Christ as Lord in their heart. Those of us who have confessed him as Lord, I pray that confession and conviction would be increased. May we know indeed you're sovereign over all things, that scripture never fails, and ultimately that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I pray in his name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment to think on these things. I'll give you a moment now. Express any Repentance and faith directly to Jesus Christ, your Lord. Take a moment now.
Oh, Father, grant us the faith to know that this is true and to truly believe. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I had a choice here to choose a song which I'm going to stay with. At the cross, 255. I hope you are able to sing it out with us as Jerry comes to lead 255 with great joy. At the cross. of him who forgives all our sins, who heals all our diseases and redeems our life from the pit. May the Lord satisfy our years with good and crown our life with his steadfast love and tender mercies forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.